If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. If for some reason you don't have your Bible, eventually when I get to the point uh, where I'm reading it, you can just follow along in your mind. (laughs) I'm sorry. Let me pray real quick. Father, we thank you for, again, for this day, for all of the treasures that accompany gathering with your people to worship you. We thank you for your word which has already been read and already been sung here. We thank you for every person that you've drawn to this place this morning. Um, We recognize, God, that we come into this building making up an expression of your body, Um, but we come in beaten up and wore out and marred and frustrated with all manner of cares and worries about life. And we sing songs that maybe aren't entirely true in our hearts when we start singing them. We sing them with the hope that as the morning unfolds, you'll make these things more true in our hearts and minds. We share requests with one another with the hope that maybe the burden of carrying the troubles and the concerns that we carry will be alleviated by the prayers of the saints. And then we come to this time where we open your word and I seek to expound on what's here. And I do so with the hope that you'll draw sinners out of darkness and into light that you'll encourage the hearts of all of your children who are here in this place. And that as if just for a few minutes, we put aside those worries and distractions of life, you'll strengthen us to the tasks that you have before us. Help us to remember that you are faithful. Help us to uh, tell ourselves the truth. And for these next few minutes this morning, help us to pay attention. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Um, Last week, we spent a while looking back at the history of Abraham and Sarah, primarily focusing on what happens when we help God keep his promises. Um, Abraham and Sarah's story illustrates the reality that I believe the New Testament reality that in the life of a believer, you, you, you know in your head, maybe lesser to a lesser degree in your heart. You can take that down, Kate. It's going to be a few minutes. Um, maybe to a lesser degree in your heart, you know that God in Christ has promised to ultimately redeem you from your present life, which is still filled up with so much of your remaining sin and all of the frustration that comes along with that. You know that in your head, but your experience indicates that maybe that promise 
of redemption is more true for somebody who's a bit more holy and a bit more put together than you are. So what we tend to want to do is assist God in keeping his promise. So what you see happen in the story of Abraham and Sarah is they're promised a child and enough time goes by that they think, "Mm, it's not that God's not faithful, it's maybe just that we're not doing enough. And so they try with their own human means to make God's promise come to fruition. And the outcome is a crop of sorrow, which some would argue echoes into the present day. I don't know that I agree. Um, I mean, Mohammed certainly claimed that he was a descendant of Ishmael. um, And a lot of Muslims do believe that they are descendants of Hagar and Abraham. Um, Nonetheless, in my own life, I can see the result of trying to help God keep his promises. And it's generally not a good thing. So... What I tried to do last week was was bring the message to a crescendo with a simple question. And the question was, how do you become a Christian? What do you do in order to be a Christian? Uh, Because my contention is that whatever works, we try to add to Christ's work in order to enhance or solidify our justification is equivalent to helping God keep his promises. Um, And Abraham and Sarah's efforts to assist God led to sorrow. Guess what? So is ours. We're going to have the same outcome. Anyone who's been a Christian for long knows that that temptation continually arises in your heart, though. Right? So... In the case of the Galatians, they thought we must add circumcision or the observation of ceremonial laws to Christ's work. And they'd been led to that conclusion by false teachers. In our case, I don't think it's necessarily circumcision. It's probably some other variety of religious activity because um, like Abraham and Sarah, we go through seasons of life that leave us wondering if God is actually going to be able to keep his promise. Primarily, I think what, what we believe is that we outsin the grace of God. I think that's our main issue. Um, we think that we have underperformed, and we think as a result that God is probably more or less generally a bit disappointed with how we've turned out so far. Um, we think that God loves a future, more sanctified, more obedient version of us than the one that currently exists. As contrary to the whole point of the gospel as it may be, and as much as you might be tempted to argue with me about this next contention, I really believe it's true, not just based on my own experience, but based on a large number of conversations that I've had with Christians over the years. The way we try most to help God is by avoiding him. We don't want to bother him with our prayers or annoy him with our needs, and we certainly don't want to plague him with our filth. So before we approach God, we make some effort to get a bit more organized and clean ourselves up 
So I'm convinced that for some Christians, I don't want to say all, because it may not be true for you, and I don't want you to detach from the rest of this message if it's not. But secretly, I think that it is. Um, For some Christians, what should be daily communion with a beloved and magnificent creator is actually more like a long-distance relationship. For some Christians, instead of regular communion, what you have is the occasional prayer that's fired up to heaven the same way you, every six or eight months, send a text message to a friend who's moved away that you're just not that close to anymore. We relate to God the way we would otherwise relate to someone that we used to know. And the reason is we think God can't keep his promises We believe that we have made it impossible. We believe that we are the exception to the invitation to be saved. So I asked the question, how do you become a Christian? What do you do? And to answer it, we looked at 14 passages of Scripture, all in the New Testament, that basically if you take the the summary of all of the imperative statements in Scripture from Christ, from the apostles, telling the person what they must do to be saved, you can come up with two activities. Activity number one, believe. Activity number two, and these are in order of priority. Activity number two, repent. So we said, okay, here's what you do in order to be saved. You you turn away from sin. You renounce it. You reject it. You despise it. And, And for those that are Like, I know it's hard for you to hear preaching like this because you're so attached to this idea that there's more involved in salvation than simply turning away from sin. And in fact, if you had turned away from it, you would never have to turn away from it again. I know it's hard for you to hear this, but the truth is you turn away from sin and then you turn away from it again and then you turn away from it again. And sometimes you turn away from it the 5,000th time more breathtakingly than you did the first time and cling by faith to the person, Jesus Christ. And we're too convinced of our own reasoning to be convinced by that. And we're so shrewd that what we say is, all right, sure, James, we'll agree. That's how you become a Christian, by repenting and believing. But once you've already become a Christian and then you have travailed down life's path and become that prodigal, wandered off into some kind of disobedience or evil, that doesn't work anymore. Repentance and faith is insufficient. So I took us to Revelation 2, where Jesus is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you were this, and now you've become that. You had begun, you had believed, you had repented, but now it looks as though the waters of baptism have dried up. Now you're not just a cracked vessel, you are nothing but a pile of ceramic dust and dried out clay. You used to be this, but now instead you're that. And what we think is surely what God would say to that person is that he needs to see some extra effort. He needs to see some skin in the game. He needs to know you really mean it this time. So instead of just repenting and believing, get circumcised. Start keeping the ceremonial law. Start keeping the Jewish calendar 
Quit eating your favorite foods. In fact, quit eating entirely until you've suffered enough to impress God. No, what we saw that God speaks to those people was two things. First, he diagnoses the problem. So in Revelation 2.4, he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. What have I been saying for four chapters in Galatians? This is about relationship. So Jesus says, you've abandoned your first love and the solution. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And here's what he wants you to do. Repent and do the works you did at first. The same thing you did to become a Christian, you must do to remain a Christian. And I left that directive hanging with this closing reminder that the alternative to repentance and faith, the only alternative is that you abide under the shadow and in the shackles of the law. And that the law has one thing to say to you, and that is that you are doomed because you cannot keep it. Those are your choices. Repentance and faith or keep the law which you cannot keep. In Galatians 5 Beginning at verse 1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, I, I want this first verse to have some legs. And I don't know of a better way to do that than to share a letter with you that was written a long, long time ago. And some of you have probably heard of this letter before. If you haven't, I'm overjoyed to be the one to introduce you to it. In 1864, after 32 years of slavery, a man named Jordan Anderson and his wife Amanda escaped slavery when Union soldiers came upon the plantation where they were kept. A year later, just after the end of of the Civil War. So a year after they'd escaped, just as the Civil War had come to an end, Jordan Anderson received a letter from his former master, Patrick Anderson. The man who used to own Jordan Anderson was, wait, did I say, hang on, I got my names messed up. Yeah, yeah, Patrick Henry Anderson. Okay, I'm good. The man who used to own him writes him a letter and asks him to return to the plantation because the plantation owner is in desperate need. The whole business is about to fail, and Jordan was especially equipped to bring new life back to this plantation. What follows is not that letter, but Jordan's reply. Dayton, Ohio, August 7th, 1865. To my old master, Colonel P.H. Anderson, Big Spring, Tennessee. Sir, I got your letter and was glad to find that you had not forgotten me and that you wanted to come back, you wanted me to come back and live with you again, promising to do better for me than anybody else can. I have often felt uneasy about you. I thought the Yankees would have hung you long before this for harboring the rebels they found at your house. I suppose they never heard about your going to Colonel Martin's to kill the Union soldier that was left by his company in their stable. 
Although you shot at me twice before I left you, I didn't want to hear of you being hurt and I'm glad you are still living. It would do me good to go back to the dear old home again and see Miss Missy or Miss Mary and Miss Martha and Alan and Esther, Green and Lee. Give my love to them all and tell them I hope we will meet in a better world if not in this. I would have gone back to see you all when I was working in the Nashville hospital, but one of the neighbors told me that Henry intended to shoot me if he ever got the chance. I want to know particularly what the good chance is you propose to give me. I'm doing tolerably well here. I get $25 a month with victuals and clothing, have a comfortable home for Mandy. The folks call her Mrs. Anderson. And the children, Millie, Jane, and Grundy, go to school and are learning well. The teacher says Grundy has a head for a preacher. They go to Sunday school, and Mandy and me attend church regularly. We are kindly treated. Sometimes we overhear others saying them colored people were slaves down in Tennessee. The children feel hurt when they hear such remarks, but I tell them it was no disgrace in Tennessee to belong to Colonel Anderson. Many darkies would have been proud, as I used to be, to call you master. Now, if you will write and say what wages you will give me, I will be better able to decide whether it would be to my advantage to move back again. As to my freedom, which you say that I can have, there is nothing to be gained on that score, as I got my free papers in 1864 from the Provost Marshal General of the Department of Nashville. Mandy says she would be afraid to go back without some proof that you were disposed to treat us justly and kindly. So we have concluded to test your sincerity by asking you to send us our wages for the time we served you. <laughs> This will make us forget and forgive old scores and rely on your justice and friendship in the future. I served you faithfully for 32 years and Mandy, 20 years. At $25 a month for me and $2 a week for Mandy, our earnings would amount to $11,680. Add to this the interest for the time our wages have been kept back and deduct what you paid for our clothing, three doctor's visits to me and a pulling a tooth for Mandy, and the balance will show what we are in justice entitled to. Please send the money by Adams Express in the care of V. Winters, Dayton, Ohio. If you fail to pay us for our faithful labors in the past, we can have little faith in your promise for the future. We trust the good maker has opened your eyes to the wrong which you and your fathers have done me and my fathers and making us toil for you for generations without recompense. Here I draw my wages every Saturday night, but in Tennessee there was never any payday for the Negroes any more than for the horses and cows. Surely there will be a day of reckoning for those who defraud the laborer his hire. In answering this letter, please state if there will be any safety for my Millie and Jane, who are now grown up and both good-looking girls. You know how it was with poor Matilda and Catherine. I would rather stay here and starve and die if it came to that than have my girls brought to shame by the violence and wickedness of their young masters. You will also please state if there has been any schools open for the colored children in your neighborhood. The great desire of my life is now to give my children an education and have them form virtuous habits. P.S. Say howdy to George Carter and thank him for taking the pistol from you when you were shooting at me. <laughs> from, from your old servant, Jordan Anderson.
I would rather stay here and starve if it came to that than have harm come to my girls or shame by the violence and wickedness of their young masters. If only we viewed the bondage of sin and the curse of the law the way Mr. Anderson viewed the plantation. I think we would be far less likely to go back to those shackles. The case Paul makes is simple. You can have freedom, vitality, and flourishing by being in relationship with Jesus Christ. Or you can have slavery to the relentless, heartless, and insatiable law. The symptoms of either life are equally simple and obvious. If your life is marked by repentance and an eager desire to relate to the Savior by regular prayer and with fellowshipping with his people and kind words for his friends, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If your life is marked by the anxiety and anger which comes from never measuring up, you have a relationship with the law. And it's a slave-slave-owner relationship. I've contended since the beginning of Galatians that for the Christian, we are on a path of obedience. And on either side of this path are two chasms. On one side, you have legalism. On the other side, you have license. What I've tried to show is that the difference between these two errors and authentic Gospel freedom is that you cannot live in either of these errors and be in authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. The issue at hand is one of relationship, not so much an issue of conduct. The reason I think it's so important is because if we don't view the gospel in terms of relationship, what we will do and what most of you have done is ping pong back and forth between these two errors. We will be today a licentious fool wiping our mouths and saying that we've done no wrong. And our lives will be marked with the corresponding depression as the appetite for worldly desires continues to grow and our appetite for the consumption of worldly treasures continues to grow, yet we become more disenchanted, more frustrated, and lose more heart. We will live with the emotional hangovers that come with self-destructive behaviors that licentiousness invites us to indulge in. You'll live with the physical consequences as well. You can get fat, I said, by consuming your calories from Starbucks and scooters. You can get liver disease by drinking alcohol, especially to excess. You can consume pornography and develop an emotional relationship with an artificial world and then wonder why you are so empty when it comes to your relationships with real human beings. You become enslaved to the very thing you were free or had license to engage in in the first place. And then as a result, to correct, you become a legalist, overwhelmed with a need to perform penance in order to impress God or appease God, who certainly must be filled with wrath towards you over your conduct yesterday. You begin to construct moral standards by which you can prove yourself as superior to that other licentious version of you from the other day. 
Once you're able to meet these artificial standards, you will quickly begin to view other people as less because they don't meet your artificial standards. This is because the legalist, lacking the assurance of salvation, which flows from a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, has to compare himself with other people, establishing your own righteousness using the framework of everyone else's lack of righteousness. The legalist is constantly comparing themselves to others. You will also establish ceremonies by which you imagine you'll be able to manage the circumstances of your life. So you've got to dress a certain way. You've got to park in a certain spot. You have to eat certain foods. You have to organize your home in a specific fashion. You have to have signs up that say, this is an American home with Japanese customs. Please remove your shoes. Because you'd rather have foot fungus in your carpet than somebody's shoe leather. That was all personal and tangential. <laughs> you have to work with a certain diligence. You have to sacrifice a certain amount. You have to tithe a certain amount. You have to spend a certain amount of time in Bible study or prayer. But you do things like these in an effort to get God to do something for you in return. You want him in your debt so that you can say, pay me what you owe me. And your life is marked by anxiety or anger or both because you're trying to be in control rather than be in relationship with your heavenly father. And so the legalist is just as isolated, just as addicted, just as emotionally empty, and just as ultimately friendless and just as deep in bondage as the licentious person. So those are the two chasms. What I haven't done for four chapters in Galatians is give a name to the path of obedience. You've got legalism and you've got licentiousness. But what do we call it if we are in vital communion with Jesus Christ and the standards of righteousness are not performative? The measure of our spiritual health is not what we do or do not touch or taste. The measure of our spiritual health is rather whether or not you are in communion with God. What do we call this? Instead of filling up the emptiness with passing pleasures... We are filled with confidence in the one who made us by the one who made us. What do we call this? Instead of filling up the emptiness with frantic religious activity and effort to control God, we are filled with the confidence in the one who loves us by the one who loves us. What do we call this? If the chasms are license and legalism, what do we call the path of faith? Well, here's what Paul says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Oh, we don't have it yet. God knows you know you don't have it yet. That you feel that eager longing to be delivered from this body of decay. In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul 
calls this path liberty. You have license. You have legalism. And in the center, in relationship with your creator, what you have is freedom. The right kind of liberty. The blessed kind of liberty. The kind that enables you to wake up another morning having not yet flown away as you'd hoped the night before and deal with everything that sits before you for the day, whether it's work or retirement. Listen to me, older folks who've, who've been, been widowed or, 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 or you're a widower. I know because I've read. I'm not insightful. I've just read, okay? So I just repeat stuff that I know because I've read it. I know you wake up in the morning and you wonder, why am I still here? Brothers and sisters, you are still here for us so that we can see, ah, that's how you do it. That's how you keep contending. That's how you stay on the path of liberty. When everything else that you'd hoped in has faded away, there is this value in having relationship with Jesus Christ, even when all other relationships have failed, either because of human nature or because of human frailty. We're so thankful that you're still here. License has addiction, misery, and anxious enslavement to the insatiable appetites of the flesh. Legalism has self-righteousness, bitterness, envy, wrath, and angry enslavement to entitlement. In either chasm, Christ is no advantage to you. You are severed. You have fallen away from grace. But this is not an amputation done by God. That's not what Paul said. You sever yourself. You cut yourself off by clinging to the law. God calls us to liberty. Verse 7 says, you were running well. Man, I know, I was. I was running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, when I get done blaming everybody else at the end of the day, I did it. I don't need any help being hindered from obeying the truth. Obeying the truth means what? Rigorous frenetic religious activity. No, it means being in relationship with Jesus Christ through faith and repentance. This persuasion is not from him who calls you, the other one, the bad one. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So let me address verse 11. The idea here is that these false teachers are saying, hey, hey, you you need to understand, Paul preaches circumcision when he's around the Jews. He just removes that part when he's speaking to the Gentiles because he wants wants more of you to believe. He wants his coffers to be full. And Paul's saying, if that were true, if I still preach circumcision, why are the Jews, like, why have I been stoned and left for dead outside Gentile towns by Jews? That's ridiculous. I wish those who unsettle you, what he's, I mean, what he's saying is, hey, if circumcision's good, cut the whole thing off. (laughs) 
That's what he's saying. I wish they would emasculate themselves. It's the most, it's the strongest language Paul ever uses. Because the view that he has of those who would cause a believer to stumble into legalism is that that, that same view that Christ had of those who would cause one of these little ones to stumble. It would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Do you see it? I mean, God in your Bible is telling you that obeying the truth does not look like legalism or licentiousness. That persuasion is not from him who calls you. But a little leaven, man, it goes a long ways, doesn't it? It doesn't take much for us to wander off the path. A little legalism, a little license, and we are quickly back in chains. Look with me at Luke 4. We're just about done here. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. This is Jesus. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Specifically, it's Isaiah 61. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Liberty, according to Galatians, is found in relationship with God. Look at me. Jesus came to set the captives free. He does not get any joy from you living in some bondage, whether religious bondage or heretical bondage, pagan or biblical. God takes no joy in his creation being in chains. The people mentioned in Jordan Anderson's letter are real and include George Carter who was a carpenter in Wilson County. It's the guy that took the gun away. <laughs> Miss Mary and Miss Martha were Colonel Anderson's wife, Mary, and their daughter, Martha. The man named Henry, who had plans to shoot Jordan, if he ever had the opportunity, was more than likely Colonel Patrick Henry Anderson's son, Patrick Henry Jr., whom everyone called Henry. He would have been about 18 when Mr. Anderson left in 1864. The two daughters, we only know them as poor Matilda and Catherine, didn't travel with their father to Ohio. And the reason for that and their fate is ultimately unknown. But most historians agree that the speculation, whatever befell them, was fatal. And probably at the hands of their master in Tennessee. 
the winters in the letter that he wants the money sent in the care of. Was Valentine Winters, a banker in Dayton and the founder of Winters Bank, for whom Anderson and his wife had such high regard that in 1870 they named their son Valentine Winters Anderson after him. Colonel Anderson, having failed to attract his former slaves back, sold the land for pennies on the dollar in an effort to get out of debt. Two years later, he was dead at the age of 44. Prior to, just prior to 2006, a historian named Raymond Winbush tracked down the living relatives of the colonel in Big Spring. 2005, 2004, somewhere in there. Tracked down the living relatives of Colonel Anderson in Big Spring and reported they are still angry at Jordan for not coming back, knowing that the plantation was in serious disrepair after the war. Well, brothers and sisters, we have been set free from slavery, and we are never going back. Amen. Let's pray.